Hello, and welcome to the Hope Reformed Baptist Church of Long Island's podcast. This episode begins our series in the Epistle to the Hebrews. The sermon was preached by Pastor Richard Jensen on September 6, 2020, during the morning worship service. The sermon's title is Introduction and covers Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Please be sure to subscribe to this podcast to hear future episodes. You can also visit our site, hopereformedli.net, and find us on Facebook and Sermon Audio for more information. And turn in your Bibles to the Epistle of Hebrews. The Epistle to the Hebrews. We'll be reading just the first four verses. Hebrews chapter 1, starting in verse 1. Hear now the inspired word of God. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets, in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. And he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the word of his power. When he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much better than the angels, as he has inherited a more excellent name than they. Let's pray. Father, once again, as we look into your word and we begin this new study in the epistle to the Hebrews, we ask that you would open our eyes, our ears, and our hearts. For we know, Father, this is a, an epistle that speaks of some of the deep things of Scripture. And so, Father, we pray that you would uh, churn up the fallow ground of our heart that we would understand and then apply to our lives these precious truths of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We pray in his name. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. We are creatures of habit, are we not? We develop routines in our schedules and practices of everyday life. Some of you men stop at the same deli every morning for your coffee and bagel. Some of you watch the same TV shows every single week. Some of you get your hair cut or styled on a schedule. Whatever it is, we are all creatures of habit. And the older we get, the more set in our ways we become, and we resist change. When microwaves first came on the market, uh, most people said they would never use them. They didn't want that nuclear radiation coming out to them. You know, it was unnatural, they said. Now, if the microwave breaks, we have to run out and buy a new one. If for no other reason, how else do you make popcorn? Yeah, we get very comfortable and tend to resist change. Now that's evident even in the church. Whether you realize it or not, you all tend to sit in the same seats, or at least the same general area. I can almost tell at a glance if anyone is missing from the service as I look out because the, the faces are all in the same place. 
I even get comfortable knowing where everyone sits. <laughs> Looking at it, yeah, this is good. Everybody's where they belong, you know. It's funny sometimes to see someone come in late and look for the seats only to find them taken. <laughs> what do I do now? And then there's a scramble, which seat do I sit in? In fact, if, if you all conspired one Sunday and everyone sat in a different seat, <laughs> it would probably take me a few minutes to adjust to the change. <laughs> In and of itself, that's not a bad thing. Habits, if used properly, are, are good things. It's, uh, it's good that we get comfortable and proficient in doing tasks that are set before us. And we even develop traditions uh, to follow and, and then pass them on to the next generation. For example, one such tradition is Thanksgiving. In our house, we definitely have Thanksgiving traditions that we adhere to pretty much every year. It was founded on godly principles, and that's good. Tradition is not an evil word. It can be used improperly, but it's not an evil word. But there is a danger when tradition becomes gospel. The danger comes when, we, when our traditions and habits exclude the possibility of change. Or when tradition and habit don't come from knowledge, but merely because we've always done it this way. I'll give you an example. If we elevate, elevate the celebration of Thanksgiving to church law, we have, we have exceeded the boundary. I think everyone knows what I'm talking about. Why do we do things this way? Well, it's the way we've always done it. There's a story, I may have told this story before, but it illustrates my point extremely well. There was a woman who was newly married and moved into a beautiful home with her husband. And she had a big modern kitchen, and she decided to cook one of her favorite meals for her husband that she had growing up, which was a roast beef. And she goes to the same market that her mother used to go to. She buys the same cut of meat that her mother used to buy. She comes home and she prayers it exactly the same way that her mother taught her. She cut off two inches off one end of the roast, put the roast in the oven, and then cooked the, uh, the end of it on the stovetop. And the meal is delicious. She's learned well from her mother. And she goes through this same routine every time she cooks the roast beef. Her husband, seeing this one day, asked her, why do you cut the end off the roast beef and then cook it in a pot on the stove? And she says, that's the way my mother taught me. And she told me that this is the way you cook a roast beef. So he pressed her, well, what's the purpose of it? Why do, you, why do you cut it off? And she says, it's just the way that I learned how to do it. So the man decided to ask her mother. And the next time he sees her, she found out what, that her mother had only one roasting pan and it was too short to fit in. And so she cut off two inches off the roast because it wouldn't fit in the oven. She had a very small oven. <laughs> so here was a woman doing the same thing that had a purpose once, but she had this big, beautiful oven and was fit almost any size roast. She was a creature of habit. The Jews of the first century 
found themselves in similar circumstances. The epistle to Hebrews addresses this very issue. The old covenant ceremonial and sacrificial system was instituted by God for a very specific purpose. It had meaning. It had significance. It was important and was necessary to observe all of those different aspects of the old covenant ceremonial law. But when Christ came, he brought a new covenant. The old sacrificial system wasn't needed any longer. But some of the Jews were locked into their traditions. And without really understanding the significance of those traditions. And that same thinking was coming into the church in the first century. And so we come to the book of Hebrews. Uh, and today we're going to introduce the book. And there's a few things that we need to understand as we approach the book of Hebrews. And the first, there are some hermeneutical considerations. That simply means interpretations. How do we interpret this book? And the first thing we need to understand is there's a historical context, context for the book. One of the principles of Reformed hermeneutics is that we hold to the historical, grammatical interpretation of Scripture. What that means is it's important to look at the Scripture in its historical setting, uh, that it was written in, and you'll never really understand the book unless you understand the setting in which it was written. For example, if you approach the parable of the Good Samaritan, uh, with, a, with a modern understanding of what a Samaritan is, you're going to miss the teaching of the text. Because if you ask the average person in our society, what is a Samaritan? And undoubtedly they will tell you it's somebody who does good deeds. But that understanding comes only as a result of the parable. The hearer at the time of Christ did not think that when, when he heard the term Samaritan, it was somebody who was good. In fact, the Samaritans at the time of Christ were outcasts. They were despised by the Jews. In fact, the Jews didn't even want to walk through Samaria. They would go around it because they didn't want to get the Samaritan dust on their shoes. So the Jews and the Samaritans avoided one another. So when Jesus tells the crowd that a Levite and a priest passed by the man, who was in need, who was beaten up, and a Samaritan helped him. That was considered unusual. They would, they would say, wow, this is amazing that this Samaritan would stoop to help, to help a Jew. See, so that's, that's the point that Jesus was trying to make. The good Samaritan did something over and above, something not expected. In the same way, if you approach the book of Hebrews with a 21st century mindset, you will undoubtedly misinterpret the book of Hebrews. So I will be cautioning you as we examine the texts to look at the teaching through the eyes of first century Jewish Christians. Second thing, we talk about historical grammatical. Second thing is the grammar of the day, we, the literary style. The word of God was written by men under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to communicate first 
to those people they were actually writing to and that they were present and living with. And the grammar and the literary style of those days differs from our own. I mean, we even are speaking different languages, let alone the usage of the words. And an understanding of those styles is necessary to understand the scripture and apply it to our society today. For example, we saw in our study of Proverbs, which was a few years ago, uh, that the Hebrew poetry is usually in the form of parallelisms. We don't have a tendency to write in that way today. Uh, and what that means is there's, there's two ideas or concepts and set either in contrast to another or in agreement with one another. I'll give you an example. Proverbs 16, 18. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Pride and a haughty spirit are not different concepts. That's just two ways of saying the same thing. And destruction and a fall are not two different ends either. So to understand the teaching, you have to know how the writers communicated to their audience. And then, of course, we have the analogy of faith. And the analogy of faith simply means that Scripture interprets Scripture. We don't take a text and isolate it from the rest of Scripture and then form a doctrine on that. Since Scripture is the inspired Word of God, there will never be contradictions in Scripture. If you take two pieces of Scripture, two portions of Scripture, and you think that one is contradicting another, you're wrong. It's that simple. You've misinterpreted one of those portions of Scripture. So we always look at one portion of Scripture in light of the rest. And that keeps us from making errors in interpretation. For example, if you'll find a setting where people often put Paul and James against one another. Paul says, faith without works. James says, faith by works. <laughs> it's not contradictory. All right. Salvation is by grace through faith, which is demonstrated by good works. So isolating those passages leads to errors on both sides. Paul even says in the same book of Romans that grace doesn't abolish the law, it establishes it. So a knowledge and a comparison of the whole of Scripture is necessary if you're going to understand it properly. And this is especially true of Hebrews. Because Hebrews draws extensively on the Old Testament. If you do not know your Old Testament you will no doubt err in your interpretation of the book of Hebrews. And that's especially true of those frequently ignored parts of the Old Testament, like the Levitical laws. Right? If I was to raise, ask for a raise of hands, how many people, when you're reading through the Bible, you skip over all those? Just like the begat passages, how many you skip over those? It's to your own detriment. The laws of the priesthood, the sacrificial laws. So what we're going to be doing as we work our way through Hebrews, is we're going to systematically be reading parts of the Old Testament during our study. And in fact, we're going to read through the entire book of Leviticus as we proceed through the study. Now, I've just emphasized a few hermeneutical principles, but it's also important to keep all of the basics in mind as we study this book. Don't forget the many lessons that we have learned through our study in the Gospel of John. Remember, the imagery that we saw running through the scriptures. 
Remember, we've, we've looked at trees, the significance of trees, gardens, eating and drinking, and how many other images and symbols did we look at and see how God uses those to teach us. And also of benefit would be if you were to review some of our studies from our Sunday school lessons. There was a series entitled How to Read the Bible. That would be very important and, and beneficial for you. In fact, those studies are still on the internet under our webpage. So let's now talk a little bit about the book of Hebrews, the epistle. Who is the author to the book of Hebrews? <laughs> the, just the mention of this draws smiles and snickers, doesn't it? One of the things that helps us in understanding a book is who wrote it. For example, knowing that Paul wrote the epistles to Timothy is helpful in our understanding of those. Uh, knowing that he wrote to the Philippians is also likewise helpful since we know of his efforts in forming and constituting the church in Philippi and his great love for it. But it's not always absolutely crucial to know who wrote it. For example, the Old Testament books, 1st and 2nd Kings, 1st and 2nd Chronicles, were probably not even written by one author. Uh, they're a compendium of the history of Israel and were probably written by many different scribes, or at least the material is from many different scribes. The fact that we don't know the author doesn't detract from the inspiration of the book. Same is true of Hebrews. There has been much disagreement in the church over the authorship of this book. The fact that the author doesn't put his name in the letter keeps us from any dogmatic assertions regarding the author. Those whom historians have attributed to the writing of the letter include the following. Some origin uh, says that it was Luke who wrote it. Some have said it was Barnabas. Some say it was Tertullian. Some have said it was Apollos. Some have said it was Clement of Rome, just to name a few. But perhaps the majority opinion of the early fathers, and the reason it was included in the canon of Scripture, was the belief that Paul was the author of the book of Hebrews. In fact, Matthew Henry says he's not certain, but he leans towards Paul being the author of it. The distinguished theologian John Owen, who wrote, a commentary consisting of seven volumes, devotes 30 pages of his commentary to demonstrate why he believes that Paul is the author of the book of Hebrews. John Brown, another Puritan commentator, says, after considering with some care the evidence on both sides of the question, I am disposed to think that, though by no means absolutely certain, it is in high degree probable that this epistle was written by the Apostle Paul. Now, Calvin, another distinguished theologian, says, I indeed can adduce no reason to show that Paul was the author. <laughs> the disagreement stems from such factors as Paul signed his name to all the other epistles, and why not this one? There is a difference in style and language from the other epistles to this one. Those who oppose Pauline authorship also say that he was the apostle to the Gentiles, so he wouldn't be writing to the Jews. Those who are in favor of Pauline authorship discount that as being trivial arguments. 
signing his name is irrelevant, they say. The different style is explained by the different content and the intent of the letter. And they point to the difference in styles. Well, John has a different style in his Gospels to his epistles and to the book of the Revelation. As to his being the, being the apostle to the Gentiles and not to the Jews, they have many answers, not the least is they hold that Peter, the apostle to the Jews, actually ascribes this letter to Paul. Let me show you how they come to that conclusion. If you look at 2 Peter 3, verses 15 and 16, Peter writes this. He's warning his, his listeners, and he says, In regard to the patience of our Lord to, to be salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given him, wrote to you, now that's to the Jews, so Paul obviously wrote something to the Jews, as also in all his letters, speaking in them of these things in which are some things hard to understand. What Peter's saying is Paul wrote, and some of the things Paul wrote were really hard to understand. And they claim that Peter shows that Paul wrote to the Jews, and then they show the similarity to what Peter says and what to the writer of Hebrews says. Hebrews 5. And having been made perfect... He became to all those who obey him the source of eternal salvation, being designated by God as a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. Concerning him, we have much to say, and listen to the phrase the author uses, and it is hard to explain. Almost identical to what Peter says. So what's the bottom line? Well, we can't say with any degree of authority that Paul or anyone else is the author. And since the Holy Spirit didn't see fit to cause the writer to put his name, it's obviously not important for us for interpretation and for use of the, of the book. What is of importance is that the Holy Spirit inspired the writing and the truth of the book, and it's from God, it's not from men. And as we study this book, you will see that the truth contained in it can only come from God himself. So who were the recipients of the letter? Well, that answer is somewhat easier to give because the earliest manuscripts you have bear the name to the Hebrews. So that kind of settles that. We don't know particularly which group, which church, but the theme and the scope of the book tells us to whom it was written. It was written to those who knew and practiced the ceremonies of the Old Covenant but have now come to faith in Jesus Christ. And the majority of the scholars favor the opinion that this was first written to the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem. Some actually believe that it was a sermon, a homily, that was written down and sent to a particular group of Hebrews. As to the date of the book, when was this book written? Dating any old manuscript is a difficult task, but there are several factors that make it somewhat easy to give an approximation of the date of this epistle. The content tells us it was obviously written during the apostolic age. That's crystal clear as we go through the book. And there can be no question that it was written before the destruction of the temple in 70 AD, for there is no mention of that fact. And when you're talking about the person and work of Jesus Christ, <laughs> the temple is crucial. And if the temple had been destroyed, that would have been mentioned for sure. And then the subject matter of the epistle, as well as 
the sacrificial system is spoken of, the way it's spoken of, and, and its place in, in writing uh, while the sacrifices were still being offered, temple had to be standing. So with that being said, let's look at a brief outline of the book. The book can be divided into two main parts. First part being more doctrinal in nature, begins at 1-1 and continues up to chapter 10, verse 18. Second part is more practical in nature, beginning in chapter 10, verse 19, right to the end of the letter. Now, needless to say, these divisions are general in nature. There's doctrine in the second part as well as practical application in the first. But this is actually another case that points to Paul because that's exactly how Paul wrote Romans. It's how he wrote his other epistles, a doctrinal section and then a practical section. So the theme of the book is introduced in the first few verses which we read this morning. I'm going to read the first three again. Listen carefully because this sets the theme for the book. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. And he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the word of his power. When he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Notice, you have two revelations and they're contrasted. The old with the various and sundry means, but the latter in Jesus Christ. In fact, as we go through this book, you want to understand why we are Reformed Baptists and not maybe Dutch Reformed or Presbyterian. The book of Hebrews will give you the answer to that. We will explore that as we go through. Chapter 3, well, uh, and let me back up a little bit. The theme that runs through the book is to show the superiority of the person and work of Christ. And the first two chapters show the superiority of Christ over the angels. And we'll explore that, how Christ is said to be over the angels and why that was necessary. Chapter 3 shows the superiority of Christ over Moses. Remember, Moses was the giver of the law in the Old Covenant. And then through verse 18 of chapter 10, the epistle shows the superiority of Christ over the priesthood, the Levitical priesthood, the Aaronic priesthood. And then we're going to see how he was a priest after the order of Melchizedek. I love that name, <laughs> Melchizedek, and just what it means. And he is a mystery. And we're going to have some fun as we preach through and talk about who this mysterious man, Melchizedek, who Abraham paid tithe to. So now, why study this book? And I think this is something that we need to lay out. I, I do this every time we begin a new study. So why, are we, why did I pick this particular study to engage in? Let me give you several reasons. First, because it's a book that is severely neglected in the church today. Most preachers never get out of chapter 11. Love chapter 11, the hall of faith. All right? But we need to work through the first 10 chapters to put those lessons in chapter 11 in context. So if we only look at chapter 11, you can get a wrong view of faith. And there are many, a myriad of wrong views of faith in the church today. 
We need to see the superiority of the atonement of Christ before we look at faith. Second reason we're going to study this book is because the predominant theological system being taught in the church in America today misunderstands the relationship of the law of Moses and the grace of Christ. And that leads to a misunderstanding of the extent and nature of the finished work of Christ. And that leads to a misunderstanding of the offices of Christ. And so we will hear many statements in the church today such as, well, we're not under law, we're under grace. And even in so-called reformed churches, you hear statements, that, well, we don't bring the law forward. That's Old Testament law. which is a gross misunderstanding of the law. If you struggle with the doctrine of particular redemption or limited atonement, usually if you're coming to the Reformed doctrines, you've heard TULIP. Everybody should know TULIP. All right? Well, the L is what gives some people some, some problems. If, if you struggle with the doctrine of particular redemption, the answer is in the book of Hebrews. Definitive answer. Third, these misunderstandings also lead to a crisis in biblical eschatology. On the one extreme, we hear statements such as, Jesus Christ is not yet King of kings and Lord of lords. He will only be that at some future date. I had trouble getting that out of my mouth. <laughs> On the other extreme, we hear, well, Christ has already come. Second coming was years ago. I had equal trouble getting that out of my mouth. <laughs> These eschatological views can only come from a misunderstanding of the nature of the finished work of Jesus Christ. Amen. And Hebrews speaks most directly to this doctrine. So we'll be examining eschatology as well. Fourth, these are all serious errors with grave consequences, but they lead to many practical errors as well. The doctrine of sanctification is clouded if you do not understand the finished work of Christ. See, doctrine is never in a vacuum. Doctrine always affects the way a Christian lives his life. What you believe affects what you do. Poor doctrine leads to poor practice. And I believe that a proper understanding of the relationship of the two covenants, and even what those terms mean, is essential for living a holy life. And Hebrews explains the nature of these covenants and how they relate to one another. And this is where you see that a, a change. Our brothers in Christ are Presbyterians. It's our view of the covenant that we come to a divergence. And Hebrews answers these questions as well. Fifth, because the predominant error among Christian Jews today is still the Judaizing heresy. There's a tendency of our Christian brothers who are of ethnic background of Jews, Jewish, they lapse back into the ceremonial laws. We have a good friend, uh, used to be the pastor of the Grace and Truth Church in Rishon Litzion, that's a little suburb outside of Tel Aviv in Israel, Baruch Meoz. I don't know, some of you may remember, we had the privilege of having him preach from our pulpit many years ago. And he told us that among the churches in Israel, the greatest problem today is still the Judaizing heresy. Well, what did Solomon say? There's nothing new under the sun. 
there is a large Messianic Jewish movement in the church, and unfortunately, they are missing the relationship between the covenants, and that has serious consequences. Now, I want to just, before I close, give a couple specific considerations. Those considerations I just gave you would apply to any church. What about us here at Hope? Why should we at this particular time? Well, first, because the epistle is a perfect follow-up to our study in the Gospel of John. As I was looking over the various studies, nothing could be a more perfect fit from coming from the Gospel of John, because John focused primarily on the person and work of Jesus Christ. And, uh, in fact, remember the purpose? To show that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Are you tired of me saying that? How many times did I say that in my study? And that by believing that they would have eternal life. Hebrews is the most definitive work on the person of Jesus Christ in scriptures. Romans is probably the most comprehensive exposition of the gospel. Hebrews is the definitive work on the person of Christ. So it's the perfect follow-up to John. Second, most of the people in our communities are Roman Catholic, are they not? Most of the people we are called upon to witness to are at least cultural Catholics. During a debate a number of years ago between James White and Robert Sungenis, we heard Mr. Sungenis appeal to the book of Hebrews to authenticate the relevance of the Mass in the Roman Catholic Church. A study of the book of Hebrews will be a great, of great assistance to you in exposing the errors of the Roman Catholic Mass and salvation by faith and work system of the Church of Rome. Hebrews is a place, if you're dealing with witnessing to Roman Catholics, you have to understand uh, the book of Hebrews. So for us in particular, there's that benefit to this study. Third, we live in a society where the predominant Christian influence is charismatic. Many of us have been influenced to one degree or another by this teaching. The 700 Club, the Word of Faith movement, have had a great impact in our communities right here on Long Island. They teach a wrong view of faith, and they teach a wrong view of biblical and extra-biblical revelation. And so many people are confused by the pervasive influence of these doctrines. Hebrews will dispel any notion of current or new revelation. It shows the clear superiority and finality of the revelation of Jesus Christ. Hebrews also gives us a proper view of faith. So this book is helpful to our specific needs here on Long Island as we deal with our Christian brothers from charismatic churches. But there's a fourth reason as well. We have been affected in this church by heretical views of the role of Christ in eschatology within the community right here on Long Island. This book, more than anything else, addresses the superiority of the person and work of Jesus Christ. And a proper understanding of the mediatorial kingdom of, of Christ will bring your doctrine of last things into a biblical worldview. And an understanding of the book is essential to any doctrine of eschatology. And let me say this, eschatology is not a bad word. It is a doctrine that is very prominent in the scriptures, and just because it's being abused by self-proclaimed latter-day prophets is no excuse to avoid it. 
It's given by God and is necessary for life and godliness because all scripture is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for instruction and correction in righteousness. So, that's the background of the book of Hebrews. The Jewish Christians were lapsing back into the observance of the Old Testament ceremonial laws. They were clinging to traditions and teaching of men, and most of them didn't even know why they were doing these things. It was just part of their religious traditions, and they were hard to let go of. In essence, every time they came to the, to the synagogue, they were cutting two inches off of that roast beef and couldn't answer why. Well, guess what? Jesus got us a bigger oven. <laughs> and a bigger pan, we don't have to cut two inches off the beef anymore. So let me ask you a question. How many of you spiritually have been cutting off two inches of the roast and not even knowing why you're doing it? If you have just accepted things that have been taught or traditions without ever evaluating them from the scriptures, we're as guilty as those first century Jews. In the book of Acts, Luke calls the Bereans more noble because they searched the scriptures daily to see if what Paul was saying was true. And Paul was not offended when they checked out what he said. He was delighted that they were searching the scriptures. And I would urge you to study the scriptures and become Bereans. To be able to give an account for the hope that lies within you. And my prayer is as we study this book that you would be moved by the Holy Spirit of God into a deeper study of his word and into more consistent holy living. The scriptures weren't given to make us smarter. They'll do that, but that wasn't the main purpose. The scriptures were given to change our lives. If you're not a Christian, my prayer is that you will come to a knowledge of the Savior through the pages of Hebrews. I can't think of a better way to see the sacrifice of Jesus Christ than through the pages of this book. And remember, we read part of Peter's sermon this morning from Acts 2. Do you remember what the response was after he talked about the person and the work of Christ in verse 37? Now when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? Peter said to them, Repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Amen. That is my prayer. Let's pray. Father, we do bow before you and thank you for the, the books that you have included in your holy scriptures. We thank you, Father, for the epistle to the Hebrews. And while we can have a little bit of fun with each other, talking about who wrote it or who didn't write it, Father, let us never miss the content because Hebrews shows us brings us to Jesus Christ and his, who he is, what he has done, and the importance of that. I pray, Father, that as we study this, that we would all grow in grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. And then, Father, I would pray for anyone who doesn't know you that today would be the day of salvation. Take away their stony heart, give them a heart of flesh, that they might repent and believe. We pray this in Jesus' name.